From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, screenwriter and director James Gray talks about his new film, Armageddon Time, inspired by his own experiences growing up in a working-class neighborhood in Queens, New York. His grandparents fled from anti-Semitism in Ukraine, but his family didn't recognize their own biases against black people. He says the film is about the lesson he learned from that time in his life. What you see is that you can be the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time. I was confused. Also, we'll hear from oncologist and cell biologist Siddhartha Mukherjee. He can still recall the first time he looked under a microscope and saw a cell he created. It's a kind of astonishing feeling because you suddenly realize that you're looking at the basic fundamental unit of life. And Maureen Corrigan will share her list of the best books of the year. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, sitting in for Terry Gross. Our first guest is filmmaker James Gray. He spoke with Terry, and I'll let her introduce him. A recurring theme in screenwriter and director James Gray's films, including The Immigrant and Little Odessa, is what it's like to be an immigrant or the child of immigrants in America. Gray's other films include The Yards, Two Lovers, The Lost City of Z, and Ad Astra. His new film, Armageddon Time, is based on his own childhood as the grandchild of Jewish immigrants from Ukraine who fled anti-Semitism in the 1920s. Set in 1980, when the child, Paul, is 11 and living in Queens, New York, the film is about his reaction to hearing some of his grandparents' stories and about learning how race and class in America often predetermine the course of your life. Paul is the son of a working-class father and a mother who comes from a more prosperous immigrant family. Although Paul's grandparents fled anti-Semitism and his whole family considers itself liberal, they're blind to their own racism. Paul's best friend, Johnny, is black. They're both considered troublemakers in school. But Paul's family pulls him from public school and away from Johnny. They send him to a private school based on the school James Gray attended. Paul felt rich in public school, but realizes he's far from it after he arrives in the private school, which his grandfather is paying for because Paul's father, who's a plumber, can't afford it. In the film, Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, is on the board of trustees of the school and is a financial donor, just as he was in the private school James Gray attended. In this scene, on Paul's first day at the school, Fred Trump's sister, Mary Ann Trump, who at the time was an assistant U.S. attorney, gives a motivational speech to these very privileged students. The speech is James Gray's attempt to recreate the speech he heard her give when he was in school. Marianne Trump is played by Jessica Chastain. Today, I'm not here to give you the same old talk. Today, I'm going to give it to you straight. You're going to want to go to a good college. You're going to want to succeed. But you're not going to. Mm-mm, that's right. Unless, unless you follow the example that I'm going to set forth for you. You may be saying to yourself, what does she know? Well, when I came here, no one handed me anything for free. How did I succeed? By good old-fashioned hard work. And that's how you're going to make it. I knew there was no free lunch through college, law school, 
the U.S. Attorney's Office. I was a woman in a man's business. But I kept on fighting. That's right, girls. I'm talking to you, too. Mm -hmm. You can be anything you want to be in this, the greatest country in the world. You people in this institution are going to wind up on top. And you'll know at the end of the day, it won't be because of a handout, right? It'll be because you earned your way there. James Gray, welcome to Fresh Air. I really like this movie, so thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you compare your reaction to Marianne Trump's speech when you heard it when you were 11 to how you think of it looking back on it now? I I have to confess to you that um, at that age, I did think it was ridiculous. So I'm not sure my attitude on it now is all that different. I remember thinking, what is she talking about? She's probably worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, Now, obviously, there was probably some aspect of the speech which makes sense to her, which, right, is that she is a woman in a man's world. But on the relative scheme of things, I mean, of course, uh, the, the level of fight that she needed was infinitesimal compared to others. The assumption in her speech, and then what is made more explicit later in the movie when Fred Trump makes a speech, is that you have an obligation to be the leaders in business, finance, and politics. You are the elite, he's telling the students. How did you feel? Because you weren't the elite. It's a weird thing. You know, when I look back on it now, it's, it's sort of like what you see is that you can be the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time, and that the world is a... I remember thinking this, actually, at the time. I was confused, you know, that there were many layers that I was on top in public school, and I I thought I was, you know, I thought I was fantastic and, and, and was really number one. And then all of a sudden, I went to this new place, and I was at the bottom. So I think that that was a, a pretty good instruction on the kind of class hierarchy that we have, uh, not only in this country, but of course in the world. And what can I say except that uh, my view on, on things hasn't really changed very much. In the film, the character based on you, Paul, the 11-year-old, encounters Fred Trump on his first day at the private school where Fred is on the board of directors. Um, you had a similar encounter. Tell us what happened to you. And what your encounter with Fred Trump was like. Yeah, I, I just walked in there and um, I must have looked absolutely absurd. Uh, I had, I remember that my brother was, he gave me this product, Dippity Dew, which was this sort of hair gel. My, I remember my hair, it. <laughs> of course. And, you know, I, I probably thought of myself as looking like, a, I don't know, a, a young Elvis Presley or something and, and, and looked insane, I'm sure. My hair was like plastered down and my father had given me an attache case. I remember him saying, this is a class A1 attache case and you're going to go to school and you're going to work and it's business. Now it's all business. No more playing around. So here I am with my plastered hair walking with an attache case through school and there's this man just standing there in a three-piece suit, and I, I hate to get all gruesome about it, but I remember he had these like weird scabs on his forehead, and he looked like a kind of evil clown to me, and he called me up, what are you doing here? What's your name? And I remember thinking, why is he talking to me? But I will tell you, instantly, I got the message that I was on the bottom, 
And it was one of those things where, look, I mean, it's, it's, it's a humiliation. And I understand that my life is, I've been very fortunate and uh, things have gone very well for me in many ways. And on the other hand, no one is free from this kind of indignity. And I remembered storing this sort of moment in my head. And it's, it's rendered, I have to say, quite, uh, quite accurately in the movie. Did he ask you your last name? He sure did. And he said, uh, he said to me, I remember he said, what's your, what's your name? And I said, Gray. He said, well, what, what's your parents' names? I said, Irwin and Hester. And he sort of looked and he nodded. And I, I, it was, <laughs> I mean, now it's very clear to me at the time. I remember thinking, why is he asking me my last name? But my parents, of course, I, I told them the story maybe about six months later because I was a bit embarrassed. And and I remember my father just sort of nodding and going, "Okay, so just 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 say your name and don't worry about it." So your 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 original name, your grandpa Greiserstein. Greiserstein. That's right. Was he trying to find out if you were Jewish? Was that it? I'm sure. I'm mm-hmm. sure. No question. So Donald Trump went to the private school that you went to. So in addition to his father Fred Trump being on the board of trustees and his aunt Marianne Trump giving a speech to the school, a motivational speech. Yeah, so Donald Trump went there. Did you have any connection with him or any good stories to tell? Well, no, he's he's quite a bit older than, than I am. Of course, proud I should have realized but, that, yeah. But, but I, of course, he had a legend because he took a desk, uh, apparently, and threw it into the center of uh, what was then uh, called the Interborough. It's now called the Jackie Robinson Parkway, which is right in front of the school and uh, almost caused a terrible accident. So uh, this is... Talk about uh, a weird world. His father took him out of that school and put him in a military academy where his apparently dorm room mate was Francis Ford Coppola. Really? Yep. In the film, Paul has a good friend who's black, and I think you did too when you were his age, when you were 11. Was it unusual in your public school for white and black kids to be close friends? This is a very important question to answer. The answer is absolutely not. The uh, busing program meant that the class was uh, filled with all kinds of people from all kinds of parts of the world. I mean, it was a very, very, very big ethnic racial mix of all peoples, and it was not unusual. And in fact, I never heard the N-word. I never heard anti-Semitic slurs. I never heard anything like this in public school, anti-Asian, nothing like that. The first time I heard this stuff was when I went to the private school, which was all white. So when you went to, like, the white, very privileged private school, how did you respond? Did you feel like you could talk back to them and say, you know, you're just wrong, or did you feel like you had to uh, be quiet about it? It depends on whether I should answer this honestly or uh, whether I should say I'm a very good guy. No, the uh, the sad truth is that the um, most of the language was pretty vicious and considerably worse even than what's in the movie. And terrible things also, by the way, about the girls in the class. Uh, I did not... I did not, uh, let's just say I did not um, acquit myself uh, particularly well. I, I was, you know, 11 and 12. I wanted to fit in. And that's a, a huge moral failing on my part. The best that I can do is to try to uh, move on. And I knew I knew what I was hearing was appalling. 
but I was trying to fit in and not be made fun of. And in fact, it was sort of the message that I got. You know, my grandfather, who was a, a delightful man on my on my mother's side, a wonderful man. But there was a kind of cognitive dissonance, you know, Terry. Like he would say, on one hand, he would say, um, your name is, is Gray. It's a very good name. You're going to fit in. Uh, just behave. And on the other side, he would say, you know, you have to do the right thing and be a mensch, be a good person. Now, being a good person and trying to fit in are not the same idea. The world is particularly hostile to people who don't try to fit in. So I remember that state of push and pull. And I must tell you, in my own life, up until I was maybe 18, I really was struggling to try to just become part of, the, part of that new world that I was inhabiting. The new private school, more elite world? That's right. Well, I knew I knew that was my ticket, you know, that was the way that I could succeed in life, or at least I thought it was, you know, that I could get to a university and which I wound up doing, getting scholarship money, this whole thing. That was my path out and it worked, you know. I went to the University of Southern California, I made a student film that that did very well for me. And so now here I am, but there is a way in a way that you can look at it where you say, "Okay, I'm now uh, making films, which is what I dreamed of doing by the time, you know, starting when I was 13 years old. And yet, metaphorically, maybe my foot is on somebody else's neck. Screenwriter and director James Gray, speaking with Terry Gross. His new film is Armageddon Time. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with screenwriter and director James Gray. His movies include Little Odessa, The Yards, Two Lovers, The Immigrant, The Lost City of Z, and Ad Astra. His new film, Armageddon Time, is based on his own childhood as the grandchild of Jewish immigrants from Ukraine who fled anti-Semitism in the 1920s. The film is set in 1980 when the child Paul is 11 and living in Queens, New York. It's about his reaction to hearing some of his grandparents' stories and about learning how race and class in America often predetermine the course of your life. Your grandparents, like the grandparents in the movie, fled Ukraine. They were fleeing anti-Semitism. And in the movie, your maternal grandfather tells the story of why his mother fled, which I believe is based on the story your grandfather told you about why his mother fled. Tell us the story of why your great-grandmother fled Ukraine. They had a uh, dry goods store in a uh, small town called uh, Ostropol in, in in Ukraine. And they had this dry goods store, and there were these pogroms that uh, would go after and, and hunt Jews. And at one point, the uh, czar's troops uh, rode their horses right into the dry goods store because it was almost like a, apparently like a barn with a very large front, and took out uh, their swords and killed her parents right in front of her. And apparently, my father told me that, um, and my mother told me that, they they would, uh, my grandmother would scream in anguish in the middle of the night, and my grandfather would scream, uh, remembering these stories and remembering this incident, wit- witnessing this this sort of thing. Both of them, both my grandfather and my grandmother, had witnessed very similar events. They had bonded over this, 
at a dance held by the Workmen's Circle in Brooklyn when they first came to the United States. They met in the United States and had almost precisely the same kind of uh, tragic stories about the pogroms killing their parents. So uh, they came to the U.S. Uh, really in a very circuitous route, uh, Hamburg, uh, Southampton in England, and then finally to, to the United States on one side and on the other side through Argentina. Was that because of immigration law? That's right. I mean, in uh, 1924, the, the door closed. The United States basically said, no more immigrants, and that's about it. And that was really the end of Ellis Island as a functioning immigration center. I mean, it stayed open, I think, until 1954. But by then, it, it was basically a place for political dissidents and, and very sparsely populated. But they, but that, they had to come through all different uh, places, you know, in order to, to, to get in. Is it true that your great-grandparents were beheaded? Uh, that's correct. So your grandmother actually witnessed that? That's correct. I mean, you can imagine that would be, uh, <laughs> you can imagine that would scar you for life, I think. Did that scar you, here, just hearing the story? I think so. I, I have been uh, much more educated lately over the past 10 years and thankfully, with the help of my wife on these matters, who's really fantastic in, 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 in all ways, but especially this one, really. And in illustrating how something catastrophic, I mean, it almost feels like the, the idea behind the Oresteia, right? That the, something awful is handed down from generation to generation. It doesn't mean that you have to experience it directly. And you can still feel uh, that mood in the house. And it can still affect you. And it can still traumatize you. I think it's an act of some madness, by the way, to tell an 11-year-old that story right before the 11-year-old goes to bed. But uh, that was considered an okay thing to do, I suppose. I want to contrast your new film, Armageddon Time, in which you basically tried to recreate your home and the furniture and the wallpaper and the clothes and all of that as it was in 1980. Contrast that with your movie, The Lost City of Z, which is shot in the jungle of, I think, Colombia? That's right. And from what I've read on, on, on the set, I mean, people were getting, like, sick, all kind of intestinal diseases, insect problems. Um, would you ever make a movie like that again where people have to suffer a certain amount uh, being in a what sounds like a pretty hostile environment? Would you ever want to do that again? It, sound, it just sounds like it's hard enough to direct a basic movie, but to be in the jungle while making it, unless you're like Werner Herzog and you are really an extremist, <laughs> it, yeah. it sounds really rough. That was in some ways an act of hubris on my part. Uh, obviously, I was a huge fan of, of Werner Herzog and, and Aguirre and Fitzcarraldo, and uh, Aguirre, the Wrath of God, that is, and, and of course also of Francis Coppola and Apocalypse Now. And I really... I always saw my job as having some kind of uh, guts, if I want to use a dirty word, to, to go out there to the jungle or to some remote place and really make, you know, David Lean go into the, to the desert. And I thought that I could marshal, I, I thought I could keep control because I was scripted down to the letter, I had storyboarded everything. And really what happens is you get down to, the jungle, and you realize, you know, there's a 
Mike, what Mike Tyson once said, he said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You know, well, that's what happens when you go down to Amazonia. That is not a place that wants you there. It's not a place <laughs> to make a film. You don't bring like a hundred people to the Don Diego River or some tributary, you know, which is in the middle of nowhere. And I remember at one point I was uh, knee deep in the, in the Diego River, which you could do when the tide was very low. And I remember... I was looking at Darius Kanji, the cinematographer, and he was looking up at the sky, and he was saying, yeah, we're going to uh, shoot in very soon, but the cloud, it has to cover the sun. I said, Darius, I, I think we need to shoot now. No, just a few more minutes. I said, Darius, I think there's a Cayman, and it's pretty close to me, and I think you need to start shooting now. Just one more minute, Darius. There's a Cayman, and it's right near me. So I'm getting out of the water now. Like, it was that kind of environment. And it's, it's, it, a madness takes over. After about two weeks, you just start to say, uh, how can I survive the day? How can I get through? How can I win the day? The heat is brutal. The humidity is brutal and unrelenting. You're quite right. People got malaria. There was, uh, you know, a viper. Someone got bitten by a viper. The, a bug crawled inside Charlie Hunnam, the lead actor's ear, and started to eat his eardrum. I mean, the stories are legion. You didn't want to wait to shoot a certain scene because there was a caiman approaching. What is a caiman? I should know this, but I don't. Oh, dear. Is it like a kind of alligator or something? Yeah, it's a kind of crocodile. Um, and I remember saying to the guy, I said to him, I said, uh, the, the wonderful producer from from Colombia, and he was he wonder he was standing in the boat, and I said, Felipe, are there are there crocodiles? Because I didn't know what a caiman was either, by the way, at the time. I said, are there crocodiles in this water? No, no, Mister James, no crocodiles, only caimans. <laughs> Now, I don't know why I accepted this as a benign thing, <laughs> but I did. Uh, I did panic a little because it looked a lot, let me tell you, like a crocodile. And then when I came back to the United States and I was editing, I told the editor this story. I said, you know, the, the water was filled with caimans, not crocodiles. And he was appalled. And he was the one who, of course, sent me all these links that was like, the black caiman is a slightly more dangerous <laughs> version of the crocodile, you know. By the way, I noticed that when you do your inner voice, when you're impersonating yourself in telling uh -oh. a story, it's not your voice. It sounds more like it would be the voice of your father or grandfather. When you listen to yourself on tape, not that you do or should, does it sound like you think you sound? Well, I've listened to myself enough that you ah, know, I, enough. I've learned that that is how I sound. But the first three times I heard myself, I was really just totally embarrassed. And thought, like, right. that can't be true. <laughs> That's right. So what I'm doing for you is the idiot that I think that I actually am to you. <laughs> That's I'm trying to... You know, the opening of Mean Streets, where In the Harvey Keitel... No, it's when Harvey Keitel sits up in bed. It's the oh, very beginning oh, of the oh, film. Yeah. Right before that, you hear a voice saying, you do it in the streets. And it's this little bit kind of this pre-film, maybe two or three sentence monologue that you hear. And it is supposed to be Harvey Keitel's inner voice, but it's voiced by Maestro Scorsese. And Scorsese says it's because you hear your inner voice differently than others hear you. Your inner voice is different, which I always thought was so beautiful. And so maybe that's part of the reason the inner voice that I have is kind of this idiot voice, you know. James Gray, it's been so great to talk with you. Thank you so much. Great to talk with you. James Gray speaking with Terry Gross. 
His new film is called Armageddon Time. Poets, patriots, immigrants, and robber barons are among the varied subjects of the books on Maureen Corrigan's 10 best list of 2022. Here's Maureen. Some years, my best books list falls into a pattern, like a year that's dominated by dystopian fiction or standout memoirs. But as perhaps befits this hectic year, the best books I read in 2022 sprawl all over the place in subject and form. Let's start with nonfiction. Ada Calhoun's Also a Poet is a moving account of her attempt to connect with her elusive father, art critic Peter Sheldahl, by trying to complete his abandoned biography of the beloved New York poet Frank O'Hara. Calhoun recalls how one day in the basement of the East Village apartment house where her parents lived for decades, she stumbled upon a treasure trove of cassette tapes from the 1970s, interviews that her father conducted with O'Hara's painter friends and fellow poets. Ultimately, the book Calhoun writes isn't an O'Hara biography either. It's a genre-defying memoir and work of criticism, as well as a love letter to O'Hara's poetry and to the city that inspired it. Renowned critic Margot Jefferson's book, Constructing a Nervous System, is also a virtuoso fusion of different forms, memoir, quick riffs, and cultural criticism. As one of the few prominent African-American female critics of her generation, Jefferson tells us she was always calculating, not always well, how to achieve, succeed as a symbol and a self. The pieces collected here range from a sharp consideration of the significance of Ella Fitzgerald's sweat during her television performances to the challenges Jefferson herself faced in teaching Willa Cather's work, along with its racist passages, to her majority white college students. I wanted them to feel chagrined, says Jefferson, and I wanted them to be disappointed. That last response is one I'm certain Jefferson's own readers will not experience. Two works of narrative history stood out for me this year. The Facemaker by medical historian Lindsay Fitzharris tells the story of British surgeon Harold Gillies' pioneering work in reconstructing the faces of some of the estimated 280,000 men who suffered facial trauma during World War I. Stacy Schiff's biography of Samuel Adams, called The Revolutionary, is a timely account of how the colonists came to think of themselves not as Bostonians or Virginians, but as Americans, and how Samuel Adams, the so-called forgotten founder, played an essential role in that transformation. On to fiction. Danny Shapiro's profound new novel, Signal Fires, jumps around in time to piece together the story of a car accident, two families, and what persists, even after neighborhoods change, people grow old, and collective memories fade. Jonathan Escoffery's debut collection of short stories, If I Survive You, 
overwhelmed me with its originality, heart, wit, and sweeping social vision. The you, Escoffery's mostly Jamaican-born immigrant characters are trying to survive, is America itself. Survival of sorts is also the subject of Claire Keegan's matchless novella, Foster, in which a young Irish girl is palmed off by her parents for a summer with relatives she doesn't know. Keegan is a writer who revels in emotional tension, the suspense of the unspoken, the held breath. A cast-off young person is also the main character in Young Mungo by Douglas Stewart, which takes readers deep into the working-class world of Glasgow, Scotland in the 1990s. There, a 15-year-old Protestant boy named Mungo falls in love with a Catholic boy. If that premise sounds sentimental, consider that the outer frame of Stewart's novel is a suspense story, not just about innocence lost, but slaughtered. Trust by Hernan Diaz is an ingeniously constructed historical novel with a postmodern point, namely that readers can't wholly trust any of the slippery stories we read here, especially the opening one about the rise of a Wall Street tycoon much like Charles Schwab or J.P. Morgan. Diaz makes a dazzling connection throughout this novel between the fantastic realms of fiction and finance. I was reluctant to put Elizabeth Strout's latest novel, Lucy by the Sea, on this best-of-the-year list. After all, her novel, O William, was on last year's list. But it's no use to hold out against Strout. She's too good. Lucy by the Sea transports Strout's familiar heroine, Lucy Barton, out of New York City and into a ramshackle house in Maine with her ex-husband, William. The two shelter in place there during the worst months of the pandemic, months Lucy recalls as having about them a feeling of diffuse grief and mutedness. Strout's spare sentences and her simple pacing constitute her own idiosyncratic take on Hemingway's famous iceberg theory, in which a depth of meaning and emotion lurks beneath the surface of the words on the page. In contrast, I'll just be direct and say that all ten of these disparate books of 2022 are superb. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. You can see her complete list on our website, freshair.npr.org. Coming up, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and physician Siddhartha Mukherjee. His new book is called The Song of the Cell. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. COVID has challenged a lot of what researchers thought they knew about how our immune system works. The key to solving COVID's mysteries and treating the disease likely involve a new kind of medicine, cellular engineering, in which different kinds of cells relating to immunity are repurposed as tools to fight specific types of cells that have gone rogue, while leaving alone the healthy ones. COVID, cancer, and HIV are some of the diseases in which this approach is being used or is in experimental stages. Our next guest, Siddhartha Mukherjee, writes about this new field of cell therapy and what we've learned about the immune system in his new book, The Song of the Cell. 
He's an oncologist, cell biologist, and hematologist who treats cancer patients and conducts research in cellular engineering. In the book, he also writes about the period of his profound depression and what he learned about new approaches to electrical brain stimulation that are being tested to treat the disease. Mukherjee won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer. He's also written about medicine for The New Yorker magazine. He spoke with Terry Gross in November. Siddhartha Mukherjee, welcome back to Fresh Air. I learned so much from your new book. Thanks for coming back to our show. Oh, thank you for having me, Terry. There's research being done now to try to direct cells related to immunity to attack only specific types of diseased cells. So how are these engineered cells um, redesigned to notice specific types of cells that have gone rogue or have become pathological? There are several angles to this. One angle is to basically find um, something on a cell, uh, on the surface of a cell, um, a flag, as it were, that will tell the immune system that it's uh, not part of the normal repertoire of cells. So, for instance, to give you a very simple example, if I was to graft a piece of skin from another one human being to another, that piece of skin would be rejected. And that's because that's the skin cells um, have flags on their surface, um, specific molecules on their surface, which are recognized by T cells. And T cells go in and say, well, 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 well wait a second, you don't belong to this person. Um, and they will reject them, and that's why the skin graft is rejected. Um, so one mechanism by which um, you can uh, specifically direct the immune system against any cell type is to find such a flag that's in that cell or that cell type and essentially engineer, uh, using a variety of gen genetically engineering methods, engineer that uh, a T cell um, or make antibodies against that flag, that molecule, that protein that's on the cell surface, and, and drive the immune system to reject that cell type. You're doing research with a team that's related to creating a type of cell that's never existed in biology. Can you describe what the cell is and why it might prove to be important in combating disease and having the immune system behave in a productive way? Um, yeah, it's a very peculiar kind of cell. It's never, it's never been, it's never existed in biology, and that's absolutely correct. Um, so um, if you think about the immune system, it has two very broad wings, um, and let's talk about those two very broad wings for a second. Um, one broad wing is called the innate immune system, and uh, it's an ancient wing of the immune system. And remember I talked about the first soldiers that come to battle um, in an infection. Well, the innate immune system is the first soldier that comes to battle, the first set of soldiers. It has many, many cells that are part of it, um, macrophages, monocytes, uh, neutrophils, uh, and natural killer cells, among other things. The important thing about the innate immune system is that it doesn't learn, as far as we know, although there are some experiments that um, have started changing this uh, traditional view, but it doesn't know or remember anything about that infection. In other words, if you get that infection again, it will not have any memory of that infection. Uh, it'll come again, the battle will start again, the soldiers will arrive again at the same site, um, there'll be new soldiers, and they will start the battle again. 
Um, the other part of the other wing of the immune system is called adaptive. Um, adaptive because it has a memory, it adapts to a particular infection. So those cells are B cells and T cells are ex- examples of that. And B cells and T cells are unlike the innate immune system in the sense that once you have an infection, they remember, there's a, there's a memory compartment, um, and they remember that you've had the infection. So the next time you have the, the microbe attack you again, um, it will remember it and, and mount an immune response against it. And that's why vaccines work, by the way. Vaccines work because they, you know, they elicit uh, not just antibodies in immediately against a virus, but because those antibody-making cells become part of the memory. And they stay inside your body until, and when the virus comes in again, the memory cells are activated and they may start making the antibody again. So again, remind, to remind us, innate system uh, and adaptive system, and it's a broad breakage. They, they, are, they are two separate kinds of system. Now, what we've tried to do and we're still trying to do is to tra- take the innate immune system and genetically engineer it to become like the adaptive system, the memory system, so that it carries with it a a weaponized, again, using gene therapy, a weaponized way to attack a cancer cell, which has never been done before. These innate cells that we're engineering now carry on their surface receptors that are specific for a cell type or a cancer cell. Um, And what's amazing about them is that they haven't existed uh, before because they're sort of a hybrid between the innate system and the immune system. So these are monocytes that have been uh, re-engineered to attack a particular kind of cell. So it would be as if you had already had this kind of cancer and your immune system knew to attack it. Uh, it would That would be one feature of it. And the other feature of it would be that um, for reasons we don't really understand, the, and I told you this before, T cells have been very, uh, CAR T cells, especially engineered T cells, really don't seem to be able to penetrate into solid tumors. Um, they, um, one of the most chilling images in biology that I've ever seen is a solid tumor where, you've, uh, where people have deployed uh, T-cell therapies of various kinds, and you can see a rim of T-cells surrounding the tumor, but they aren't getting into the tumor. And um, we, 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 we now know some of the reasons why. The tumors make specific factors. They make a specific kind of home for themselves, which is impregnable to, um, to T-cells. But what's interesting about that home is that they're not impregnable to these neutrophils and monocytes that we're re-engineering. They actually, these monocytes go in and out, come in and out without a problem. So what we're doing really is... is once you arm the monocyte or the uh, neutrophil to be able to kill the T-cells, all of a sudden it goes in, but not only does it go in, it has a weapon. It's been weaponized to kill the, T-cell, uh, to kill the cancer cell, pardon me. And so it, it, it really is a, a hybrid, but it's using some natural ability of these uh, monocytes to be able to traffic in and out effortlessly between inside solid tumors. Well, can you imagine if this actually worked and became a standard cancer therapy? I mean, that would be remarkable and wonderful, and you would be one of the people responsible for it. So can you talk a little bit about the excitement 
of working on a project like this and the frustration <laughs> of not having any immediate answer about whether it's going to work or not. This kind of thing probably takes years, right? It takes years, and um, it's a project, I should say, that we're doing in collaboration with, with another scientist named Ron Vale, and there's a big team um, in Boston that's carrying out the research. Um, it's hard for me to convey the excitement that's sweeping through the whole field of cell biology. Um, biology, life sciences in general, um, has three pillars, um, incredible pillars, um, the three basic rules. I mean, for a long time, uh, physicists uh, would, would disdain biologists. You know, we were the, the lesser scientists, you know, the, the people who brought them coffee. But in the end, perhaps we have the last laugh because physicists are still ser searching for theories, their general uh, unifying theories. Um, biologists have three general unifying theories. The first theory is the theory of evolution which uh, should be taught in schools, um, <laughs> I should say. And the second is, uh, is cell theory, the fact that all organisms are made out of cells. And the third is the genetic uh, theory, so the theory of inheritance and the genetic code and the universality of it across all animals uh, and plants and bacteria. So these three theories are the pillars of, of, of biology. And it's, it felt to me that all of these three theories, you know, there are a thousand books on evolution, a thousand books on genetics and very few books on cell biology. There's all this sweeping excitement because we're now playing with cells. We're making new kinds of cells. We're making, we're putting them into patients' bodies, T-cells, pancreatic cells that make insulin for type 1 diabetes, you know, all genetically altered cells to cure sickle cell anemia. That excitement, it's, it's, it's very, very tough for me to explain the kind of I don't know, kind of headiness, giddiness, the madness, the 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 psychic, I don't know, power that grips you um, once you get into the field and, and feel this excitement. Have you, in conjunction with other researchers, developed any therapies that have already succeeded? The quick answer is uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> quick and definitive answer. The quick and definitive answer is our laboratory, I should say, I work with a big team, has developed several therapies. Um, they're all in mid-trial. Some of them are in um, late trials. The ones that are in late trials have proved to be successful thus far. Um, but, you know, there's always a question of how long, how much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm proud to say that I have developed therapies for humans. Can you explain what one of them is? Well, yes. Um, among other things, we've started a CAR-T uh, center of the first kind in India and done what we consider a pivotal trial. We're still in mid-trial, so um, we are awaiting results, but um, there have certainly been successes. What is the success? Like, what are you, what are you trying to change or cure? We're trying to change or we're trying to cure, among other things, uh, lymphoblastic leukemia and other blood cancers among them. There's a, a personal chapter that relates to medicine in your new book, and that's a chapter about depression, um, which became a special interest of yours in 2017 after your father died when you sunk into a very profound depression. And antidepressants helped, but only moderately. And you spoke to a researcher about depression, and he described depression as a slow brain problem. What did he mean? 
Well, the brain is made up of cells, um, brain made up of neurons, nerve cells. And for the longest time, people thought that um, the, way, the way the neurons communicate with each other is through chemicals. They secrete chemicals into a tiny little space between neurons, and they talk to each other through those chemicals. Now, for the longest time, researchers thought that uh, a particular chemical called serotonin was uh, low or missing in the brain. Um, and if you just up the level of serotonin, essentially like you know, increasing the seasoning in a soup, um, you would um, allow the, the neurons that are responsible for depression or the nerve circuits that are responsible for depression to be reset and everything would be fine again. Um, but that's not what generally turned out to be the case. First of all, if that was the case, you'd react to an antidepressant like a serotonin uh, uptake inhibitor. So these are drugs that increase the level of serotonin. You'd respond to that instantly, but you don't. Um, so Paul Greengard had a different hypothesis and has a, you know, continued to have a different hypothesis. Unfortunately, he died. But his hypothesis was that it's not just seasoning in the soup. It's not just the amount of serotonin. It's what serotonin does to the next cell. In fact, these chemicals make profound biochemical, metabolic, and other changes in the, in the second cell, in the cell that's listening, that, are, that is responsible not only for normal physiology, but for diseases like depression. And that's called, a, he called it the slow pathway, because it doesn't, it's not just sort of the, the quick chatter between neurons, but a much slower pathway that takes place over maybe, uh, you know, minutes, seconds, perhaps days, and perhaps weeks to, to change. And so that slow pathway translates to depression? Greengard believed that that slow pathway was responsible for depression, and that's why these serotonin inhibitors, um, uh, uptake inhibitors, sorry, which increase the level of serotonin, don't work instantly. You have to make very slow changes in cells, change their physiology, change their metabolism, change their biochemistry, change the proteins that they're making in order to change the neural circuits that are responsible for depression. So that's why he believed that it was the slow pathway. And in fact, he'd found some very promising evidence that it was the some precise proteins involved in the slow pathway that are responsible for depression. Where do other scientists stand on this theory? People are beginning to believe this theory more and more. Um, earlier, Greengard had shown, for which he won the Nobel Prize, Greengard had shown that there are aspects of um, the slow pathway that are responsible for uh, responding to other chemicals like dopamine that change, again, the communication between neurons. And he was just about extending. So, you know, he uh, discovered that this was relevant in Parkinson's disease and schizophrenia. And he was just about extending this work to depression um, when he unfortunately passed away. When you were going through the period of depression, did it cause you to lose interest in your research or in your patients? It didn't cause me to, I would say, superficially, no, in the sense that I could certainly continue the actions. Um, but there was something missing. I could sense, I very much get the sense of that, what was missing. Um, one of the things that went missing was was the sense of connection, both to my research and to my patients. I've always been very connected to both. Um, but I could see uh, that connection fading away. And in fact, that's when I started taking action and, and really started to 
go and, and see, um, you know, talk therapist and, and change medicines and really work hard on, on my brain. Um, you know, exercise is, is one, of the, one of the best antidepressants that there can be, um, you know, seasonal changes. Um, I tried everything. And, and as I said, um, maybe it was a slow pathway, but it slowly abated. Illness can create depression or exacerbate it. Do you feel like going through a period of depression yourself helped you understand what some of your patients are experiencing? Oh, absolutely. Um, I could sense, um, uh, you know, the sense of doom and also the sense of uncertainty. Uncertainty itself causes anxiety, which is actually one of the most prominent symptoms of depression. Often people will come and tell you, I'm extraordinarily anxious. Um, but in fact, what's going on with them is that there's an underlying depressive component to this. The anxiety is a manifestation of that. It's a, it's a, it's the manifestation of a mood disorder rather than some kind of particular panic that's going on through their brain. And I think you know, illness causes one of the most profound forms of anxiety that we know. Um, and so, um, I I very much encourage, particularly cancer patients, to seek out. Um, psychiatric help, um, talk therapy, medicines if needed, um, and any kind of um, therapy that will help them because uh, it let me, my own experience with, um, with, with, uh, with my mood and my mood disorder allowed me to really understand what patients go through. Siddhartha Mukherjee, thank you so much for talking with us and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much and thank you for having me, Terry. Siddhartha Mukherjee speaking with Terry Gross. His new book is called the Song of the Cell. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shurock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nukundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Bricker.